why'd I do it, Sarah? Why'd I do it? I could have beat that guy. I could have beat him cold. He never would have known. I just had a show. Just had to show those creeps and those punks what the game is like when it's great, when it's really great. And like anything can be great. Anything can be great. I don't care if bricklaying can be great if a guy knows. If he knows what he's doing and why and if he can make it come off. It's a great feeling, boy. It's a real great feeling. When you're right and you know you're right. It's like all of a sudden I got oil in my arm. Cool cue's part of me. You know, it's uh, pulled you. It's got nerves in it. It's a piece of wood. It's got nerves in it. Feel a roll of those balls. You don't have to look. You just know. You make shots that nobody's ever made before. And you play that game the way nobody's ever played it before. You're not a loser, Eddie. You're a winner. Some men never get to feel that way about anything. The Lifers Podcast with Scott Lucas, Gabe Rodriguez, and Ben Reiser. And now, here's Scott, Gabe, and Ben. Yeah. Hey, I was thinking about something. Hey, Gabe, how are you? Ooh, why are you so quiet? Gabe, I can't hear you, Gabe. Can you hear me now? No, you need to turn up your volume. No, something's up. I mean, it's working, but it's just really quiet. It's not working well. Are you hearing me out of this? Uh oh. Yeah. (laughs) Do you have any? Do you have any volume control in? Maybe in Zoom. He sounds like the small man in a box. Did that go up? Yes. Yeah. Sorry about that. Okay, now I'm full blast. Ah, sweet Jesus. So you're back from? Are you back from Florida, Gabe? Yeah, we went to St. Pete. St. Petersburg over the weekend, meet the the grandson and see some beaches and stuff. And it was fun. We had a good time. How's the Chipotle in St. Pete? I didn't think they had any. I didn't see any. Oh, they've got it. (laughs) It's one of their biggest markets. No, we were looking for seafood and stuff. We didn't find it. We found it, but we didn't have a chance to eat it. So we just, you know, did the usual pasta and pizza and all that stuff. Just quick stuff. Just a sweet weekend visit. It was fun. Cool. That pizza guy's been in um, Florida for the last couple of weeks. Um, oh, is he? Is he? Is he checking out the the Florida pizza scene? Yeah, yeah. Telling Florida to be proud of whatever their pizza is, which he can't quite figure out what that is, but whatever. Oh, is that what he just does now? He just goes to everybody and like own it, own your pizza, own it. Yeah, that's his thing. Uh, so I'm fascinated by this, by the string of coincidences and tie-ins that happened with last week's episode. Okay. I want to just, I want to run through them for everyone's benefit. So first of all, on a 70 movies episode in our recent past, you, somehow, not surprisingly, the replacements and Tommy Stinson came up and you told me this story about selling a CD to Tommy Stinson. 
Right. And, and you did a pretty good, what I thought, I thought a pretty good impression of whoever it was who was telling you that that was Tommy Stinson. You did this whole like, Tommy Stinson. So that was Phil that I was doing that impersonation of. Right. Which now I want to say that from time to time, maybe once an episode, you, you tend to do an impression of somebody, usually mm -hmm. like an actor or something. And, and I did pretty good, but I don't know your Phil from that seventies thing was not like when I first when first of all, I didn't know that was Phil until halfway right. through the episode last week when Phil told the same story and you're like, yeah, that was, you. I'm like, oh, I don't think you, you did Phil, you do, were doing more of like a Boston accent maybe or something. I don't know what, I, I, maybe you were doing a New York accent, but it, I don't know. I think your Phil needs some work is what I'm trying to tell you. Well, I'm more of a prop comic instead of an <laughs> impressionist. So yeah, I, I do the best I can. I, I, I'm aware. I'm not, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not. Uh, well, there was just a, there was a, there was a break of the, a, what, a, a crack in the facade. Well, I, I did notice that Phil did not laugh at all when I did my impersonation of him. So, um, right. Well, you yeah. didn't really, I don't think you really did it. You certainly didn't do it as full on as you did in the seventies episode when you were no, recounting no, I the did story. It. If you listen to it, I definitely oh, did. did it. And I <laughs> thought he would laugh, but he well, didn't. Maybe laugh. he didn't, maybe he didn't know you were doing him either. <laughs> right. He just thought I was doing some other New Yorker. Yeah. Um, so, it's okay. a fine line between Boston and New York sometimes. And yeah. that's not one that I've mastered yet. You know, I'm not Martin short. Right. Okay. So I discovered last <laughs> last week during the episode that oh this story you told me uh, turns out to have been during that tour that we were mm -hmm. that you were talking about on the latest episode of Lifers and that was Phil, but then this other crazy thing happened which is that we had this whole crazy Chipotle discussion and things were getting a little tense between you and Gabe and I thought let me try to turn this into a more positive thing and start talking about what might be good places you thought that was tense Mexican. between me and gabe <laughs> i don't know i haven't tense? i guess i haven't you thought seen, that was tense i haven't seen the full extent of how tense things can get so for me that was about as tense as as it was getting you were you were you were you know you were on the attack with gabe about the whole chipotle thing and um okay all all right i get it i'm the asshole in the, well, in the this thing <laughs> is that what's going on better you than than me is what mm -hmm. my motto is. Kind of, um, so just because, uh, just because I stick up for the for the little guy in the small business Mexican restaurants, and mm -hmm. Gabe sticks up for big corporate McDonald's Mexican, I'm the fucking asshole. Is that what's going on here? No. When you put it that way, now I take it all back. But my point is, I tried to redirect the conversation, and I talked about um, Thalia Hall and going to some shows there and that being in a restaurant that has tons of great Mexican restaurants. Right. Um, so we talked about that. Then it turns out that we end up talking about Tommy Stinson on that show. Mm -hmm. And we also end up talking about a terrible cover of how soon is now, which turned out to have been by love spit love, which was the shitty band that Richard Butler started after he broke up the psychedelic furs. Terrible name. Yes. Right. And but then, that and was then, the, the, the How Soon Is Now cover from The Craft, directed by Andrew Fleming, who also directed Threesome. Right. And you know, when you were saying that, I couldn't remember who had directed The Craft. And when you said Threesome, I got it confused with that fucking James Toback and that movie he made with Robert Downey. Where there's, Two Girls and a Guy or something like that? Yeah, something like that. And I was yeah. like, wait, I don't think that James Toback directed The Craft. And so I was all confused. No. But... 
the point is that Richard Butler, I love, although Love Spit Love is not good and that cover is terrible, uh, but I could listen to that guy sing all yeah. year long. Right. So, but it it then occurred to me that that even though I didn't remember at the time when I said, oh, I'd been to Thalia Hall a couple times in recent years, the last time I was there was to see the Psychedelic Furs with Tommy Stinson's band, Bash and Pop opening. So it was this crazy thing. We were all talking about the same shit throughout this episode without even realizing it. It was a strange confluence of shit. Thank you. Well, that makes a lot of sense because uh, Richard Fortis, who's probably playing with uh, Love Spit Love because he plays with uh, what's his mm -hmm. face in Psychedelic Furs. Mm -hmm. He played with Tommy in uh, Guns N' Roses. And Richard ah. still plays with Guns N' Roses. He'd be a good one to get on the show. Remember Richard from uh, Honky Toast, Gabe? <laughs> I hear the word Honky Toast once every three years, and I, uh -huh. I, I don't remember I, anything except the drummer. And it's usually from me, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, Richard played in Honky Toast, and he's definitely one of the better, best guitar players I've ever toured with. Uh, but he was in a band called Honky Toast, and he started playing with uh, Psychedelic Furs, and now his main gig is um, Guns N' Roses. And Guns N' Roses was Tommy's main gig for a while. So we should probably get Richard on here one of these days. Why don't we get Tommy Stinson on one of these days? We should definitely get Tommy Stinson on here one of these days. We, I would love to talk about that. I would love to hear if Tommy remembers buying that CD for me for $10. Because didn't you tell me that years later you gave him back the $10? I gave him back the $10, yeah. And he was, he was like, dude, I, I don't want this $10. I'm like, no, you have to take it. It's not about the money. It's about that I owe you and I should never have charged you. And I wasn't even paying attention. Right. Um, but it was, I think it was awkward for him. Um, so well, well, we'll, we'll make the episode. even. I thought it would be funny. I thought he would laugh. And, it, yeah. and he was like, yeah, yeah, I thought he would laugh, but he was just kind of like, oh man, you don't have to give me money. I was like, it's, it's just 10 bucks. I I remember I can afford it. I remember seeing a bash and pop show at the Double Door and being downstairs. It was not a very well attended show, but I was downstairs in the lower level bar hanging out before mm -hmm. before they were playing. And uh I was the only one down there. I don't even think the bar was open. I was just sitting there. And then Tommy, I guess, came out of right. his dressing room and plopped his plopped himself down at that bar with me. But I was so fucking starstruck that i couldn't even like say anything <laughs> we just sort of sat there in silence <laughs> two of us for a couple of minutes stupid um, yeah one of the times he i don't think it was that bash and pop show but one of the times he played at at uh double door i think oh, it, was it wasn't like, i'm sorry it wasn't bash and pop it was like a solo tommy stinson oh so was that the one that i opened up playing acoustic no i wish okay because one of those it was and i think that was like the first time i'd actually played an acoustic solo gig. And it was, was he that, playing that solo show. acoustic that night too? Maybe, maybe that's why it was that. It, that might have been the thinking. Um, yeah. When I, I saw him, he was I can't remember band. if he did or not. I think he had his girlfriend or his wife playing with him. He had a whole band, although he was calling it Tommy Stinson, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, tonight's episode is a sort of a, a bit of a a continuation of that last episode um so you know it, it, it's good to bring up the three by five stuff I and mean, we're going to talk to 
to our A&R guy, uh, the guy that signed us to Island um, all those years ago. So, um, so yeah, so it's. <laughs> are you okay? Oh, here's Joe. There he is. Uh-huh. Joe, hey, Joe, are you there? Hey, hey, how you doing? Hey, what's going on? Okay, where are you in the bathroom there? I am in the bathroom. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, I'm, uh, I'm on my bed, so uh, we're all we're all cozy. I'm making demos in the bathroom. Ah, uh, acoustics. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Who who we got here? Ben. I don't know you, Ben. No. Ben I, is I, our I, producer. Uh, Hello, he, Ben. Yes, Ben. And then we got Gabe. Gabe Rodriguez over there. Gabe. 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 Mister. <laughs> uh, Mister Tenpin. That's me. How's it going, Joe? It's going okay, man. Long time, yeah. It's been a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, we Facebook. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's, 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 that's exactly the same thing. This is just like <laughs> Facebooking. When, when you're not in jail, we do Facebook. <laughs> uh, I've been in jail three times. Facebook Joe, jail. Oh, Facebook jail, not real jail. <laughs> I've been in jail one time actually. Oh yeah, what oh, was yeah? What, what was going on there? Uh, I was. I, let's see, going way back here, I was 18, so I, I was of legal age to drink, but I had an open beer bottle uh, on the street uh, in Somerville, New Jersey, where I grew up. Yes. So, uh, yeah, so you did hard time. I did a, a hard night. Uh, <laughs> and uh, I, so I was 18, and uh, they threw me in, um, they threw, I think they wanted to scare me, and they certainly did. They threw me in a cell with some dude who had assaulted his wife with a baseball bat. Sounds right. And, uh, yeah, and the cops actually, uh, they came to the cell. It was, it was like out of, uh, you know, in the heat of the night or whatever, you know, they're coming to the cell <laughs> to talk to me and stuff. And they're showing me the baseball bat uh, <laughs> that was cracked in half where the guy assaulted his wife. And, and so I'm just an 18 year old kid with an open beer bottle. And this guy's like friggin' almost killed his wife. Um, so I, yeah, I was, I was a little nervous that night. So like, just keep, keep drinking open liquor in public. And this is what's going to happen to this you. Is, this is where you're going, son. Yes. Um, yeah. Well, it's Joe Basso, everybody. Here he is. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people that can change your life. And some people you might not even be aware of that they're doing it, you know. But this is one guy that I can point to and go, yep, that guy changed my life. And, oh my. and, and it's for the better, by the way. You know, there are a lot of people that not for the better. But that's he's here, Joe Basso. I don't want to embarrass him, <laughs> but I want to get that out of the way. Oh, my. And uh, we were talking about the 3 by 5 tour last week. So. Yes. Some of those things got me thinking. I was like, let's get let's get Joe over here and let's just keep going with the local H way back machine. Um, so so thanks for doing this. Oh, my. Uh, th- th- I'm honored. Thank you for thank you for inviting me. Uh, this is, this is going to be I can I can already feel this is going to be a lot of fun. So what, how did he change your life, Scott? We well, need to hear the, the story. Yeah. Oh, how? We'll see. We'll see. Oh, OK. Keep us in suspense. Uh, well, you, you know, he's, he's the guy that signed us to, uh, Island. I guess it was Polydor at the time. Uh, he was our A&R guy. Um, and you know, is that a time when not a lot of people were going to give us a shot? You know, we had sent our demo to every label we could think of, like all the ones that we, we loved, you know, like Sub Pop and Matador and Cargo and, 
you know, and and we happen to send Your a way couple. down to us. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, well I was like, what do you mean you didn't love Polydor? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing was, was Joe was uh, an AR guy for uh, Quicksand, Quicksand's mm. major label debut, uh, Slip. So we loved that record. So had this idea, it was like, what if we just send it straight to their A&R guy? Because, uh, you know, it wasn't a savvy guy, but I was savvy enough to know that the A&R guy was the guy who would want to listen to a tape. Um, so we sent it to him and uh, miraculously, he listened to it. So here, here and by the way, uh, you guys changed my life for the better too. So oh. back at you. Um, so... You know, every A and R person uh, back then would get the the mountains and bags full of tapes. Um, some some bands were making CDs, but it was mostly cassette tapes. Yeah. And every A and R person, or their assistant, and or their assistant would have the bags, garbage bags, full of tapes in their office that they never ever listened to at all. And I'm convinced that they would just let them pile up in the corner and after a few months they would throw it out and then more tapes would come in and it just kept you know going like that and one day i'm gonna be completely honest i i of <laughs> course had those bags of tapes myself because right. you would find out about bands through you know the usual sources um uh, attorneys managers um, sometimes a, a real buzz, you know, would actually happen organically to use that word. Um, you know, but you know, a lot of times it was through various channels. You never, ever, ever, ever got a tape in cold and listened to it and said, Oh my God. So, so like everyone else, I had those bags of tapes and one day I started to feel guilty about it. I was like, you know, all these fucking people are sending me their stuff and they, you know, and they have hopes and dreams and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And they're knocking themselves out. And here I am just like friggin', you know, some asshole looking at this bag that I'm going to gatekeeper. Yes. So I decided one day I'm going to listen to some of these things. <laughs> and so I. I would, you know, one night after work, I stuck my hand in this bag and I listened to a couple and I'm just like, well, that sucks. And that's right. no good. And not There's good. a reason why I don't listen to these things. Yeah. Yeah. And I was about to, I was, I remember I was late for a dinner meeting and I was about to literally stop after like five tapes. Cause I was just like, these blow. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so I just, I mean, I didn't even look, I just stuck my hand in you know, I'm fishing. I pull my hand out and there's this, you know, it couldn't have been more unprofessional, Scott. I'm just saying it couldn't have been a worse presentation. <laughs> it was like, you know, local age to Joe Basso, Polydor, blah, blah. And I, you know, I, op I open it up and, you know, it may, it may as well have been tied to a brick thrown in the window. <laughs> You know, it was it was really a bad presentation. But but so I looked at this handwritten note. And, you know, it was everything Scott said, you know, you're Quicksand's A&R guy and we love them. And so you must have some ears, we think. And, you know, here's our band. And, and then I was struck by, you know, and we're we're two guys, you know, and we do right. this ourselves now. OK, let's get something pretty straight right off the bat. Uh, Joe and Scott 
um, you know, predated the the power duo thing. The they did, despite despite when anyone will tell you. To, to my eyes, to my knowledge, these guys did it first. So, so they're like, we're two guys. And I was like, what? No, no fucking way. You know, get a bass player. So right. I put the tape in and I was like, motherfucker, this stuff is really solid. This is really good stuff. And anyway, long story short. So I go to my boss and I'm like, you know, these two guys out of Zion, Illinois, wherever that is, sent me this tape and and i think it's kind of like a knockout and and i gotta go see them and uh so he's like you know go see them you know <laughs> sure you know you got travel um and i remember you know trudging on out to zion illinois and i remember joe opened the door to you know your ratty little rehearsal unit and um and he's like you're the AR guy. I'm like, uh, yeah. He's like, get on in here. We're gonna we're gonna blow your ass away. And I was like, oh, okay, <laughs> confidence. I like that. And yeah. so I go in, and I was completely skeptical. Like, you know, can these two guys really do this? And and it's not gonna sound stupid. And because mm. uh, I, I this wasn't done. I mean, I'm just this was not done. And so I sat on this couch. And, uh, you know, for like five or six songs that they played, you, you played, you proceeded to knock me fucking out. And I was just like, if they can do this in front of an audience, you know, these guys are a winner. So anyway, look, so there you go. Well, you know, that's. Well, we offered to set up a show for you and you were like, nah, I don't need to do that. I'll just, I'll just come to your uh, practice that, uh, space. I, I remember being pretty fast. So I didn't, I didn't, you didn't have to do it then. Right. I, I pretty much went back to David and said, you know. Right. And, it, and we hadn't really been doing the two piece thing for that long. Like, yeah, yeah. We had done the two piece thing for a few people that had come out and seen us and they were like, you're going to get a bass player. Right. And we're like, nah. And they're like, okay. And then the, deal would fall apart and i think you were the first person who like saw it as a positive you know saw it as an asset i yeah and it wasn't something i had to dwell on either it wasn't you know something i was like well we'll see how it works and get they'll get a bass player after we have some success and i was just like it works like no need to think about this you know yeah hey Joe, is that the kind yes. of thing that you would do all the time is 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 go check out a band and just have them play for you rather than have a show set up so you could see them with a crowd? I mean, not not all the time, uh, maybe half a dozen times where I was, you know, impressed by a piece of music enough where I was like, you know, I got to see them and, and maybe they couldn't set up a show or or anything like that um but uh in in all the other times uh i didn't like them <laughs> local h was the only one where i was like i'm signing these guys that's it i mean yeah. it's a little weird i mean it's not it's not the ideal way we would have liked to present ourselves either sure. but you, yeah. you were just kind of like eh, it doesn't matter i'll just come out and i'm just like oh man this isn't gonna fucking work uh, but I mean, we didn't even play that many songs. You're like, okay, that's enough, guys. I got it. it yeah, it was pretty short. You know, well, I, you know, I, 
I mean, I, I, I was, I was actually, I'm thinking back now. I, I think I was kind of like trying to be uh, uh, sensitive to you guys. Like, you know, don't make them keep auditioning. I already know I want to sign them. So we don't have to drag this whole thing out. You know, we're, we're going to, you know, I want to do this thing. So, yeah. How long had you been an A&R guy at that point? Like, when did you start uh, doing that? So only a couple of years. So yeah. I think that was 93 that I signed you guys. 94, 93? I can't, I can't, 93, I can't. 94. 94, okay. 94, 94, oh. Maybe it was so, 93. It was probably 93. Yeah, only a couple of years, really. Um, I joined Polydor in 91. Um, left Guitar World magazine and went over to them. So, be, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, you're basically primarily a writer. I mean, would you be comfortable being described <laughs> as that? I'm an, I'm an uncomfortable writer. Um, yes. Yeah. 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 Sure. Never, never stopped really. Never stopped writing. No, never no. stopped. Yeah. And, and you were writing for uh, Guitar World in the 80s. Uh, you're talking to everybody too. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. The I whole mean, yeah. interviewing The Edge. Jimmy Page, right? Did you interview Jimmy Page? Uh, yeah, Jimmy Page, Keith Richards, McCartney, um, all those dudes. You know, yeah, sure. Right, right. I mean, because you're still you're still writing for Guitar World and and what Cigar World? Are you writing for Cigar World? <laughs> yes, C Cigar and Spirits. Um, yeah. There should be a Cigar World. Um, <laughs> I, I remember when Guitar World first started, it was started by uh, this guy, Dennis, um, well, uh, no, Stanley Harris, Harris Publications. And basically he would have anything world, you know, that right. was his, his crochet world, dog world, cat world, um, gun world, you know, whatever. So Guitar World. Um, I think Guitar World's the only one that's still around. Um, uh, so no, so I write for Guitar World still, Guitar Player, Cigar and Spirits, um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and you write scripts all the time. I'm writing scripts, yeah. yeah. And you've got, what's going on with, uh, can I say it, Saving Starlight? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, you know, after I did A&R, um, I started kind of a TV career, wrote for The Sopranos, Chris Isaac show, a couple other shows. Well, I, you were writing for The Sopranos while you were our A and R guy. Yeah, yeah. Remember, because yeah. you you wrote the "A Hit Is a Hit" episode. A hit is a hit, and in fact, what? Well, well I you wondered, you, I call, wondered, what? you you talk to me. You're like, I'm writing for this show, uh, this mob show on HBO called The Sopranos, and uh, you know. One of the characters gets involved with the music industry and I kind of want to have you guys involved with it. And I was yes. like, oh, uh, a mob show on HBO? Good luck with that. <laughs> um, oh, you didn't think it was you didn't think it was a short bet? No, I didn't. I was like, because what did HBO have then? I mean, they had a pause. That was pretty much, I think, it. <laughs> right. I mean, they had the Larry Sanders show, which was great. Yeah. But I mean, I didn't see them making the transition to, to great, you know, hour-long dramas. Don't forget I'm that Dream On show where they had the naked women every week with that guy having... Oh, Dream On, right, yeah. Right. Was, it, was that before Sopranos? Oh, yes. Yeah. Okay. I mean, 
they were yeah they really weren't known for original programming and <laughs> i had i had written a script this is still was doing anr and this is a long story um so another director was gonna do the script make the film and then his agent his agents talked him out of doing it they said they would this would be a bad move for you so i was like okay and but then they gave the script to david chase and they were like well, you should read this guy so he did and he he liked my stuff and then he asked me to write the sopranos episode um the, so it's really weird it's like you know we don't want you to do this guy's film but here david chase read this guy um wait 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 so you had a script for a movie about what, what, what was that about um that was actually another kind of mob kind of thing okay so they kind of read your script and said we can sort of uh, mold this to the show sort of yeah they were just it was just as a piece of writing they were like you know we don't want you to do this film but we like this guy's writing so here david chase read this so so anyway, so yeah, so I got together with David and now no one knew about The Sopranos at all. And I remember he showed me the pilot and I was like completely friggin' knocked out. I mean, as one would be. Um, yeah. It, you know, from the first few minutes, I was just like, I'm in. And I remember he was very, um, he was kind of depressed when he showed it to me because uh, he had just gotten wind that um, uh, they were going to do, uh, was it analyze, analyze this with De Niro and right. And he was, he, so he had this great pilot already shot, ready to go. And he's just like, you know, we're dead in the water, you know, cause De Niro right. is going to do this thing. And I remember telling him like, well, I don't know, man, you know, your thing is so good. I, you know, you can't worry about it. You know, I, I think your thing is, is pretty good. Um, it obviously was. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so I wanted you guys to be the band, right. In, <laughs> you know, in, in it. And well, Christopher always was seduced by uh, show business um, throughout the Sopranos. He, what did he get involved with that? He, he took acting classes. I remember. Yeah. And. Uh, yeah. Produce Cleaver. They were making the, the film Cleaver. <laughs> Great title. Um, right. Actually, I have to thank Scott. I I, I cribbed a, a band title from him. Yeah. You came up with Defiler. <laughs> and I was just like, there is no better metal band name than Defiler. You know? Well, the idea that the band would be called Defiler and the record would be called Defiler and the first yes. single would be called Defiler. Yes. Um, so my favorite part of the episode when I finally saw it was the, the closing song over the credits is a song called Defiler. Yes. By Defiler. And I was very, very proud of that. I came up with uh, lyrics for that song and um, I don't think I got credits for it. So I'm, I'm, I'm missing out on some key publishing uh, royalties. But the good and the bad, it was. It's a pretty uh, good song. <laughs> it's, it's not a bad song. Um, the good and the bad was we. Um, we were getting ready to, to to start real prep for shooting the episode. And I really wanted, you know, local H to be the band. And unfortunately they were doing really well on tour 
and couldn't get off the road. Mm-hmm. So I was just like, you know, well, we got to get someone else. And I remember in truth, though, in truth, you wouldn't you might not have worked. And I'll tell you why, because I remember, you know, sitting with with David and he's like, well, we need a band and they can't be too good. <laughs> and, you know, and after I couldn't get local H because of scheduling purposes, uh, conflicts, I said, I know the guys can't be too good. I, I, I know the guys. Right. So I called up just this, an assorted batch of friends and literally put this band together. <laughs> um, well, that didn't stop us from being used as, for the uh, template for the really bad band in the Great White Hype. Yes, they used feed, which like I, I don't think I realized until later. Was, they just wanted a song that sounded bad. Like it was like this is a <laughs> shitty song by a shitty band. And, and I was kind of like, hey, oh, my God. You know, sometimes you sometimes you just cannot try too hard. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We yeah. definitely didn't try too hard on it. First record. <laughs> <laughs> but so you 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 you've got this script now and like oh, yeah. over this past year you've you've sort of like did covid sort of stop that in the tracks or is yeah um i i i uh, i do have a couple film projects going on and uh so with a writer director that i'm working with um a brilliant guy named um adam rogers mm-hmm. he he he's done a few He's done a, had a few scripts sold, but he he uh, directed a really great film called At Middleton with Andy Garcia and Vera Farmiga. Um, Ooh. Yes, a wonderful film. So anyway, so we wrote this script called Saving Starlight, and it harkens back to the sort of golden age of 70s cinema, and it's set in a drive-in, and uh, we... We have, um, we're very fortunate. We right. got uh, Josh Lucas uh, on board to star. And so we're now doing the really fun process of putting the thing together and financing and all that sort of thing. But uh, Josh is, is on board and pretty happy about it. That's awesome. I mean, yeah. that, what was that pilot that you had me read of yours? And that was about the, the film distribution scene in the 70s. Is songwriting like this where you, you have to write like five scripts, uh, five or six scripts for every one that anything actually happens with? No. No? No. Oh, every, every song. We, we use it all. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> all the trash gets used. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's just like that to me, like the last couple of things I've read of yours, that seems to be a thing. Like you're like the 70s in mm. particular and also this idea of the drive-in and wanting to like pen a, ru- a love letter to the drive-in which is interesting because this past year drive-ins have come back in a big motherfucking way you've probably played a few right we've played a few it's funny that we spent the last 20 to 30 years trying to wipe drive-ins off the face of the earth and they turn around and end up saving a lot of our asses and i you know and it's funny i started the script before the whole covid thing um I I grew up with uh, my drive-in, with the Somerville drive-in, and we had a couple theaters in the area. But I love going to the drive-in as a kid. I mean, I think I think the That's first film I saw was um, 
the ugly dachshund at the drive-in. And I, I remember no, seeing- I don't know that. Ben, do you know that one? It's, it's a Disney thing. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, that darn cat. Uh, let's see, yes. you know, everything. I mean, I saw The Exorcist at a drive-in with my dad. Ooh. Yeah, and he was so scared. Um, he was. He was, yeah. It was the first time I ever saw my dad scream, you know. <laughs> it's, you know so picture yourself sitting in a car with your dad screaming. So that's that's pretty good. Um, no, so, yeah, I, I, I revere the 70s. I revere 70s filmmakers. To me, it's the just the, the Ben. Huh? We got to have Joe on our other show. Scott and I do the 70 movies we saw in the 70s show. Oh my God. It's, it's the last golden age of cinema. It really is. I mean, cancel your plans for tomorrow night. We're going to talk about black Sunday with Bruce Dern and Martha Keller. That actually figures into the, the, this, this film project. Um, It is referenced. Yeah. Black Sunday. Yeah. Great, great film. Um, No, come on, man. You got Bogdanovich working. You got William Friedkin. Um, you you got Hal Ashby. Oh my God! Uh, you know, and it was it was like the last time that really good personal filmmaking was the mainstream. Um, you know right. that 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 seems to have gone away. I think I think it's kind of coming back because of streaming now. You know, mm-hmm. people actually are discovering that. Not all movies have to be, you know, friggin' blockbuster superhero things. Um, but uh, anyway, yeah, no. Right. So I started this script, set at a drive-in, <laughs> before COVID happened. And so Adam and I worked on it and, you know, got it ready. And, <laughs> and what was weird was then it kind of shut down the business as far as anybody reading anything. Or wanting to even, you know, why should we read something? Because we don't even know when we're going to be able to make a film, you know. So Hollywood was kind of really on ice for a good nine, ten months, you know. Um, and but at that same time, then in the real world, drive-ins had this renaissance, which you know looks like it's still kind of sticking around, which is which is cool because I think people who never had this drive-in experience are realizing like wow this is pretty cool this is pretty fun it's a whole different world how does one become an a and r person <laughs> what's on your resume well I, okay so i i was i was a magazine editor for guitar world and you know so that kind of puts you in a certain kind of you know stratosphere um traveling in various circles and uh, you know i I, I just, you know, kind of decided like, well, I don't want to just write about the music. I want to kind of be part of, you know, getting it made, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I remember, you know, meeting a few record company presidents at, at gigs and stuff like that and talking to them. And, you know, they were all kind of a little slick and just really, you know, don't, didn't really want to take me seriously. and. So one day I heard about Polydor Records was restarting 
and because it had been inactive for a while. Right. And uh, and it was a producer, uh, David Sigerson, mm-hmm. who uh, was named the head. Now, David had never worked at a record company before. He had just been a producer. And I thought, well, fuck it. You know, this guy's never done it before. Mm-hmm. So he'll take a shot on me who's never done it before. And so I, I literally, I called him up, you know, which you could do. And, and he's like, you know, sure, come on in. And um, we just had a conversation, really. Uh, it was as simple as that, uh, you know, because I'd, I'd been jumping, jumping through all these hoops to try to get these guys to, you know, talk to me and, and give me a shot. But then the guy who actually gave me the shot, it couldn't have been easier. Um, I also told him my my salary and i think that made it really easy because <laughs> he was like sure that those numbers sound fine to me <laughs> when can you start he threw away the paper that he had written what he's going to offer you on he's like well i don't need that anymore i threw it in the trash yeah, i think so yeah so so then who was the first band you signed quicksand um uh technically yes although this anti-folk artist named Paleface was, I think, technically first, uh-huh. although uh, it was kind of David signed it and was like, you know, it can be your first signing, you know? And I was like, really? Um, <laughs> uh, and 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 so there was this like little anti-folk movement starting in um, in Manhattan. And there was this guy, Paleface, who was managed by Danny Fields, who um, mm-hmm. worked with the Ramones. Uh, wonderful guy. Um, I think we signed Paleface for about 50 bucks. Um, it, <laughs> it was like a real cheap thing. And I think, I think it was like David just kind of like wanted to break me in. Like, here, you can say you signed him and go make a record and get your feet wet. And then you'll kind of know what to do. Um, it didn't really work out that way because we made the record in like two days and I don't think I really learned anything about record making at all. Um, it wasn't in really until quicksand that I learned about record making and how frigging uh, difficult it in fact could be. Like how, what's difficult about it? Um, well, at the time we kind of were dealing with a band that sort of, didn't know if they wanted to make a record after they had gone to all the trouble of getting signed. So I literally had to sort of talk them into making this record. Um, you know, we were in this Longview Farms in Massachusetts and it, it just, it was, it was really difficult. First off, everyone wanted to sign quicksand. Yeah. And, like in 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 two months time they went from people barely heard of them to everyone is is on them and i i i really loved their 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 uh, their single yeah um and i went to see them at cb's and i just decided well they're going to be my first signing and of course everyone was like you're out of your fucking mind because 
you know, you had the heads of every record company, you know, guys who've sold 40 million albums, you know, trying to sign this band. And I was, you know, nobody. And so everyone's like, you're not gonna sign them, you know, you know, the, the big guys are gonna sign them. And I was like, no, I'm gonna sign them. So I just, I hung on and hung on and I would not, I, I think I just wore the band out. I think they got so sick of me that they're like, if the only way to get rid of this guy is to fucking sign with him. Um, but actually it wasn't the way to get rid of me at all. Cause that was actually the way to the guarantee I was going to be in their, their life. Um, no. So I, I, I did sign them. And um, I remember we went to the studio in Massachusetts, this beautiful farm studio. Uh, and, and, and it couldn't have been, it, it was, couldn't have been more antithetical to what this band didn't want to do. You know, they wanted to make a just down and dirty, no frills uh, record, you know, in New York City and just kind of knock it out. And I thought they deserved something bigger, more more beautiful, if you will. Um, I wanted them to have Technicolor. Um, I thought they deserved it. And so... We went to Longview Farms. We did. We did use Ted Nicely as a producer, oh, who, okay. who produced Fagazi, you know, and a bunch of other great bands. Shudder to Think, Girls Against Boys. Shudder to Think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ted and Ted is the nicest guy in the world, um, and a brilliant chef. Oh my God, I, I still use tips to this day that I learned from him. I remember one day he was making the dessert and he didn't have confectioner sugar. And after throwing a fit that he didn't have confectioner sugar, he did what any other self-respecting chef would do. He actually made it like in front of, Oh yeah. Um, What was the dish? Bananas a la nicely. It was was something to that. So everything seemed okay. Like, you know, band agreed to you know work with ted they you know went off to longview farms and i remember after like three days i got a call from ted and he's just like you know you gotta get up here boss man we got some problems and you know the singer uh had just kind of came to this conclusion that making this record in this way wasn't something he wanted to do. And to this day, I can't really get to the bottom of what it was he wanted to do. But I was like, well, we're here and you got a pretty great band and you got pretty great songs and, you know, you may as well do it and you may as well do a really good job of it because what's the alternative you know uh i don't know if that really was what unlocked the the door there but he then walked down the hill and went into the studio and finished making the record in four or five days and you know it's pretty fucking great (laughs) with ted actually that's uh, thank you no uh 
at that point, Ted decided that he didn't really want to continue. And we continued on with Steve Hagler, who okay. was the engineer. And he did a fucking knockout job. Yeah. And uh, I liked Steve so much that uh, I, I was like, well, he should work with this other band I got. And, you know, you, you know, you know how that worked out. Right. Yeah. Which was totally cool with us, which which made all, all the sense, you know, uh, you know, the recording of him engineering those Pixies <laughs> records. Yes. Um, and, you know, we knew him from producing that uh, quicksand record. So made total sense to us. It wasn't. So you just. So once you signed us, we just kind of um, went in the studio with him. Yeah. And, and the funny thing was, it's all kind of now flooding back in a way like. You know, sometimes there's producer and engineer and they're kind of like two different minds. So you're like, you know, well, the producer's doing one thing and the engineer is doing something completely else. And, you know, these guys totally don't match up. Um, uh, Ted and Steve really synced really nicely, uh, no mm -hmm. pun intended, um, really well. So when Ted did exit and Steve continued on, it was seamless. It wasn't yeah. like we missed a beat at all. Um, you know, I, you know, no, no one had to relearn a way of working. There was no new agenda. It was just like, continue on. And it, and I thought he, I, you know, I thought he did a great job as producer. And then finally, when, you know, he started working with you guys, I was just like, man, this guy's, you know, knows, knows the, the knows the game. Yeah, I think he'd been ready. He'd been ready for a while yeah. to get in that seat. I didn't realize that's how it happened. Uh, when Ted left, did he go straight to working on the Shutter to Think record? Mm, boy, I can't remember. Something like that. I mean, he didn't, he didn't, you know, people were calling him. It's not like his dance card was uh, empty. He, you know, he had stuff to right. go do. So, yeah. And he, he's, he was great. I, I love the guy. Yeah, I remember we had... Uh, we were mixing uh, Ham Fisted, the first record. Yeah. And Steve was mixing it. And we were at the carriage house. Oh, yeah. And I yeah. remember you knew that I was a fan of Shudder to Think. So you gave me a cassette of Pony Express record, Express, which yeah. Ted Nicely had done. Mm -hmm. And I remember uh, laying with the headphones, listening to it on my Walkman, you know, because you would sleep at the carriage house upstairs and yeah. listening to Pony Express record and going, oh my God, we fucked up. This, <laughs> this is so great. And I have to go back downstairs tomorrow and finish mixing this record that I don't even want to come out anymore. I mean, I, I, I'm embarrassed of this record when I listen to this Shudder to Think record. So- uh, Did you, I, did, I so can't remember. I can't remember. Did you articulate that to me? Because it seems that every it's weird. Like I don't, I don't want to make the quicksand experience sound like such an anomaly. Because I feel like every band, every artist I've ever worked with, they kind of have their freak out. You know, <laughs> they they always seem to have this freak out of I suck. This is all wrong. What right. am I doing? <laughs> I hate these people get me out of here and, <laughs> and then I always have to you know be the one to be like no 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 it's all good 
it's all fine. Okay, we can change this if you really want to, right. but you're you're you know you're you're great. You're doing great stuff, and just friggin' wake up tomorrow and it's gonna be fine. And then you know usually it is. No, I've had a few of those freakouts with you, um, but but the thing is, is like as I get older, you would think that you know when you freak out. And then six months later, you're like, you don't remember what you were freaking out about. Yeah, yeah. The thing is, we just finished mixing something and I still, I'm still having these freakouts. You know, I kept sending it back <laughs> to the mastering place, back and forth. And I'm like, you would think I would get over this by now, but I don't. Every single record I have, I go crazy. Well, it's a I, sickness. Yeah, no, and I, and I understand it. I mean, uh, you know, doing what I do is, different you know writing you know well you are a writer too um you're actually a really good writer you are you you are guys i i just gotta say this uh are you still doing the film criticism that you were doing a couple years ago you would post your reviews um i still do it I, you know i know you do yeah you, you do it on facebook but you were you were writing these regular reviews for a, a publication uh, in Chicago, right? Which one was for it? For Chicagoist, yeah. No, I don't. I, yeah. I don't do that anymore. Chicagoist, I don't do that anymore. That must have been it. Okay. Um, you are a goddamn amazing film critic. And oh. no, no, no. You're really good because first off, you really do understand movies. But more than that, you really love movies. But more than that, you can really explain why you love a movie and why someone else should give this movie a, a look because they will probably love it too. Um, and you're pretty Ginsu knife when you hate something too. Um, <laughs> you know, you 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 know, you you go in there and you friggin' you know, you slice it up, but. You're also just a really good, no, I'm it's the truth. You're also just a really good writer, you know, in a narrative fashion. You know, your your prose. You know, you you're 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 an interesting writer, which always helps. I mean, Pauline Kael was that way. You know, I sometimes would read her stuff, and I didn't give a shit if I ever watched the movie she was actually even talking about. I just loved what she was kind of talking about. <laughs> as far as how it made her feel or, you know, and, and that's, you know, that's Joe just Basso, everybody still my champion, <laughs> still my champion. Joe, and you are our so guy. right. Everything still you just trying said. to make no, me feel he, good. No, he is really, really good. And, and, you know, a lot of times I'll, I'll go to my wife and I'll be like, Oh, we got to watch so-and-so film. Scott's raving about it. So we got to watch it. Um, <laughs> no, you're, no, you're, and then Reggie's like, Oh, great. No, no, I think I think most of the time you've uh, you, you've pointed to us in some in some good stuff. Um, well, I mean, the, the thing about our relationship, and and I know it's 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 far more interesting and and makes uh, the uh, artiste seem you know more like an artiste. But it, you know, there's always supposed to be a, a big problem between the artiste and the A and R guy, and I didn't have that adversarial relationship with you like I mean very early on you I mean you were kind of like a mentor to me you know and I know not everybody has that with their A&R guy and you know we would talk about we would talk about movies and we would talk about music and 
you would very, you know, I mean, it was, it was, it was refreshing to me to talk to somebody who took what I was doing seriously, you know, who actually thought that I was a good songwriter. So, you know, uh, it, I, and I know that makes me sound like a, a compliant servant, but you know, it was, it, it, it was, it was good. No. So like, if you had something to say, I was very interested in it. No, th thank you. And, and completely, completely likewise. I mean, no, I, it was, it was obvious to me right off the bat that you were enormously talented. I mean, you know, that you were a real student of this stuff, uh, be it music, be it movies, you know, right. be it art, you know, you know, intellectually curious, you know, and that stuff is fun, you know, and so I, it was very obvious to me, like, you know, well, this guy has done his homework, but he he's really hungry for more, you know, and and I don't know, I, I think I've always kind of been that way, too. So it was just kind of cool to just, you know, have a friend that I could, you know, talk to about all this sort of stuff. But it was it was kind of funny because back then in the 90s, um, it became very, very hip to view the A&R guys, A&R people as as the enemy, you know we're we're the big bad right. record company and we're gonna you know we're gonna whore you out and, and you know and and over commercialize you and you know defang all all the stuff that's good about you and sell you like you know washing detergent and you know and i don't know i was just like I always viewed it as pop music, which means popular music, which means let's friggin' get it out there. I mean, I, you know, I never took you guys and tried to turn you into Millie Vanilli or something, you know? I, I was just like, well, let's take what is there and just, you know, make it as good as it can be, but make it, make it, make it everything it wants to be you know not change it just you know well, that's what that's what's shocking about that first record is that you let us i mean that's not an easy record to listen to and and, and I, I i'm thinking that from your perspective any sort of uh commercial prospects you thought we might have had went out the window as soon as you started hearing mixes of the record so like, you know, and this was something that wasn't happening a lot in the 90s where uh, artist development wasn't really happening. So the fact that you let us run with a really, you know, relatively unfriendly sounding first record like that kind of is amazing to me when I look back on it. Well, thank you. Um, and, and I cannot take all credit for that because I will give total credit to Davit, uh, Sigerson and Human Majd um you know also at the label and they mm -hmm. i i think they okay they were they wanted music to succeed they wanted artists to succeed and they were seeing what was happening and bands would get tossed out of the shoot and if you didn't have that single you were gone and so their mo was 
as much as we can, let's really try to put the brakes on that. So we did really try to instill that thing called artist development throughout the company. And so, yeah, you know, that first record, Ham Fisted, um, we did view as a setup record. Yeah, sure. We would have been thrilled if it went gold, yeah. and, you know, beautiful. But if it didn't, <laughs> it's okay. We're going to make another one, you know. The, and, and that was very, I, I, I remember going into Davit and Human, and I remember saying, you know, guys, these guys, you know, guys to them, you know, these guys, meaning you guys, really deserve their shot. Just, just whatever you can promise me, promise that we're not going to toss a record out and drop them if nothing happens. And they were like, we won't do that. No, we'll, we'll, these, these local H will get their shot. And, you know, credit to them. They, 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 they meant, they meant it. And, you know, so we were able to tag in there and it wasn't always easy. Believe me, no. I, mean, I had to walk that floor every day and kind of build believers and but it was a labor of love you know because i would go into everybody's office and just be like you got to hear this song you got to hear this song they're going to be in town next week you got to come see them blah 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 and you know one by one i made you know you get the believers you know jill tomlinson i mean now now Joe Mango, um, Mango, uh, you know, cannot. <laughs> What's so funny? Uh, just an inside joke about Mango. That I drink Mango juicy juice all the time, and oh, Jill, Jill's a she's a doll. She was great for the band, but uh, go absolutely. Ahead, <laughs> no, she. I mean, she she really she really knocked herself out. I mean, she totally fell in yeah. love with you guys and made it her mission that you know you guys were gonna you know get somewhere um so ham-fisted comes out it does nothing it it's not it's not nice you've got all these people going wow these guys can't deliver and so that record comes out in january of 95 and then mm. six months later we're, we're on tour with tripping daisy and i get a call from you and you're telling me that the record is dead and I couldn't believe it. I was like, six months, you know, we never got to put out Scott Rock. You know, I was convinced Scott Rock would be. Yeah, yeah. Well. Um, it, and you're like, no, sorry, man. It, it's time to go back home and write a new record. And I, that's six months. Yeah. So you had us. So that's six months. That's in what? Like that's in what? June, July. You had us back in the studio that year, November of that year of 95. Record comes out in January. We're back in the studio in November recording as good as dead. I still don't know how you made that happen. Um, yeah, I don't either. Um, well, no, again, to their credit, David and Human stuck by their word. And I mean, I will tell you, there was some chatter of, you know, this two-man band that didn't happen get rid of them you know they're, right. they're it's not gonna happen and i was like you know i was just like no fuck you fuck this 
I love these guys. I believe in them because yeah, I, I, you know, seen what you do. I'd heard your stuff. And I think you had played me a couple of the new, new, new tunes. And I was just like, no, these guys, they have it. I know they have it. I know they are worth it. And we are going to make another record. And, you know, nothing... No, nothing is more uh, infectious than passion, you know? I mean, and if you have a guy who's beating his fist on the desk and saying, no, we're going to make another record, this is going to happen, people have, you know, eventually they believe you yeah. or they just want to shut you up. Um Maybe they wanted to shut they me up. They just give up, right? Yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, that seems to work for you. Yeah, but uh, but man, you guys started you you started playing me some of the new things you were working on, and I was just like, you know, this is going to happen. You know, the minute it was it was it was obvious. Well, you had us go in and 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 demo what we had, which we didn't really have anything. You know, we had like maybe six or seven songs, but on, on that was uh, high five and um, bound for the floor. I think no problem was in there. Freeze dried flies. I mean, there was some good stuff, but, but, but so you had that and you're like, okay, this is great. Write some more. Uh, and I had a karaoke machine and yes, we I remember that recorded thing. like more demos on a karaoke machine. I mean, I think one of them, the demo for, Eddie Vedder was just like me banging on the drums and uh, overdubbing myself playing guitar and singing. And you could hear it. And and uh, the second I heard that, I was just like, you know, you can just picture this thing in 3D, you know? It was obvious to me that was gonna, you know, be a great song. I think actually the first time I heard uh, High Five and Motherfucker, I was like, you're ready, you know? Just amazing riff, I mean, amazing title, the whole thing, the whole thing, you know, it was, it was right there, you know, the, the song that kind of took a little work, which was, you know, uh, the big song from the record uh, was Bound for the Floor, you know, I, I remember you, um, did you not have the chorus, or was the chorus the bridge? No, I, remember, I, the, I had a big long convoluted bridge in it and yeah. i just thought the song was too simple and you were kind of like all right you get rid of that and i think you've got something yeah it kind of sort of went somewhere that it didn't need to go and i was like no you you're right here already don't take it somewhere else um did, did you think that was the one off the record did you hear that right away and go let's make this let's focus on this Pretty much. I mean, yeah. I mean, it was that was pretty obvious. Yeah, without a doubt. Um, hmm. My, my. Although I think my, I. Did did I have a problem with the title? I can't remember. Because that was when bands would all. Yeah, there was this. There was a, it was sort of in vogue for bands to call songs titles that that they never sang. Right. You know, and I was like, don't do that. You know, how <laughs> how's anyone gonna know what the song is if you don't say it? You right. Know? I mean, 
quicksand always did that uh -huh. you know i was just like you know i'll just make up my own titles you know because you you're never gonna sing what's in the song right and that yeah. came to a head later on with uh all the kids are right we had a huge fight about that that was yeah that got a little that got a little heated um yeah i mean i think you you didn't want to repeat the same problems we had with bound so which which you're right you know, it was, it's one of the worst titles ever. Everyone just said, fuck it and called it the copacetic song. It's like, we're not going to call it what you want to call it. We're going to call it what we want to call it. And I, I think you didn't want that to happen again with uh, all the kids. So you, there was an insistence. And, and I don't know if it was exactly your idea, but, but you, you agreed with it. Um, but it was an insistence that the title of the song had to be in that song. And I thought that was just shit. Yeah, I know. And, 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 and I felt really bad about that because, you know, it's like you never want to have to convince you never if you can convince somebody of something and then, you know, that they actually now fully agree, then you're like, OK, cool. Now we both agree. But if if you have to sort of like convince somebody to do something and you still know they don't agree, well, that sucks. You know, that's yeah, a bummer. Yeah, that, that's that's a bummer. But, you know, it's like, you know. Paul McCartney wasn't going to write Hey Jude and call it friggin' Tire Iron, you know? I mean, it's Hey Jude, <laughs> you know? And the minute you hear the song, you're going to be like, oh, it's Hey Jude, for sure. Got that one. Right. It was amazing to see Gabe, back in the day, develop his own fan base. Let's fucking talk gonna, about that. I, was gonna ask I know. That's, that's weird ask you what you thought of me but you know you signed you signed local h the two-man band yes your your volume just went down hey gabe what did you, you just do <laughs> sorry I'm, Gabe's I'm moved, a big I'm, moment and he I'm blows it there you go so there you go. signed oh, you know okay. local h is a two-man band and you came out and all of a sudden here i am i'm i'm the, the the third wheel or whatever i am and i come out and start singing on some of these songs and i'm like and, and i know you're gonna be there I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to blow this for these guys. I, I don't know what I'm doing up here. I'm up here shaking my tambourine in front of this A&R guy. And he's thinking, who the hell is this guy? You know? <laughs> well, it, you know, it's like, like, uh, you know, when you just see something kind of new uh, and, you know, like you're seeing something for the first time and you're like, you don't know what it is, but you just know you like it. it and it makes no sense at all. But, you know, so, yeah, it was like, I forget what club it was at and in, in, in it was in it was in Chicago. And uh, I saw you guys finally for the first time in front of people and uh, and the band's playing and suddenly you go up and you're like, you know, singing with them and you got the tambourine. And I was, at first I was like, what the fuck is Gabe doing? You know, like leave them alone you know <laughs> let them play you know but then i was like all right you know like it's, it's it's not gabe hadn't lost his mind and was doing some sort of random thing like the band you know because at first i thought like you know they know he's gonna do this you know I, so then i was like oh no they they want him to do this he's part of it so then i was like no it works but so then I remember you guys played New York City for the first time. Um, was the first gig at Brownies or CB's? I forget. It, 
Probably, probably brownies. brownies. We played brownies yeah, so brownies. many times, right? Yeah. I think the first gig was at brownies. And, uh, you know, I had told like one or two people like, you know, you know, oh, and then the roadie comes up and does a few <laughs> songs with them. So just be ready, you know, but, you know, it's not like everybody knew that. And so by like the third or fourth song, Gabe, you ran up and, and you were, you know, on stage. And I remember all these people kept coming up to me and they're like, you know, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> that happened for years, Joe. I, that was. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, oh, well, that's Gabe. And they were like, you know, they were like, what's what's Gabe? <laughs> and I'm like, well, that's their that's their dude, you know, he, you know, um, but <laughs> can, can we get a what's Gabe T-shirt over a jean? Yeah. Yeah. Gabe. I, re I remember I remember one of the promo guys said that like right in my face, like what's Gabe? And I'm like, well, that, you know, that's Gabe. Um, but then like a year later and it was maybe you'd played New York like four or five times. I mean, you, you played a lot and you, it was like your fourth or fifth time playing New York price still the brownies. And I remember, you know, Gabe runs on stage and the crowd was cheering. <laughs> like, there he is, you know, it was like they were waiting for you. You know, it was cool. You know, Gabe had to find his audience. Gabe, I, I, I never asked you this. Like, were you nervous playing arenas? I'm more nervous playing small clubs because I'm so close to the people and they can actually see, they can see me and see my eyes and see what, you know, almost seem through me. But in an arena, nobody, nobody, you know, nobody can see you. They're so far away. So that was easy. You know, we went on Madison Square Garden with STP and I'm out there, you know, shaking the tambourine and playing a kazoo in front of 20,000 people. That's nothing. I mean, what was that like? Hey, <laughs> you're, 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 you know, were, were you in a bus at oh, that yeah. point or were yeah, you? We're, we're in a bus. We were, yeah. Okay. So what was that like? You're in the bus, you're going down the, you know, Manhattan streets and you're pulling up to the fucking garden and, and you're thinking like, I'm going to be on that fucking stage later tonight. I would be friggin' Kind of nervous. It wasn't that nerve wracking, uh, except, you know, we had to, we had to get down and get off at a certain time. That was more nerve wracking. The funny story about Madison Square Garden though, is, uh, you know, Joe and Scott get off the stage and I'm, we're, I'm carrying some of the gear off. I got two guitars in my hands, you know, with the cases and I get to our dressing room. I'm by myself and I see Steven Tyler walk up because Aerosmith was doing stuff with STP that night. And he walks up with, with his daughter Liv and he's like, Oh, I'll get that door for you, sir. Cause I had, I had my two hands ah. carrying these guitars and I'm like, okay, thanks. You know, Steven Tyler opened the door for me. <laughs> that's, that's pretty cool. That's, that's pretty cool. Um, I think there were a few at the garden though. I think there were a few fan moments where people were like, you know, what's that? <laughs> you know, when you went on stage, you know, like, like that was a big reaction I would get, you know, like what's going on. What is that? It was you know, yeah, there's a lot of confusion with that. Yeah, well, just you know, it's just like, well, just watch it for a second. You'll sometimes get it was funny, it, you know? and sometimes it was embarrassing because and in Philly, early on, like right around the Trocadero, we we're filming Fritz's Corner. I think it was the same show. Somebody would say, "Bring out the gimp." <laughs> <laughs> they say, "Bring out the gimp." I think he said, "Bring out the gimp." 
So I wasn't always fun in games, but you know, I think somebody was just joking around. Did anyone ever try to block you from getting on stage? Like, you know, you know, they thought you were like some crazed <laughs> fan and you shouldn't be up there. No, I don't think so. I, uh, no, everybody knew that I was part of the crew. I mean, so it wasn't like in Gimme Shelter where the girls are rushing Mick and the security is stopping them. No, it was fun. I mean, I, I had the time of my life just like everybody else. See, that would have been cool if you tried to sort of accost the band. <laughs> You're right, right. Right. Yeah. Well, he, was that at the, the garden show where you were introducing us and we would play uh, Money by Pink Floyd every night before we'd go on and Gabe would come out and he would introduce us and he'd go, ladies and gentlemen, gentlemen. <laughs> then you'd hear like the, uh, the cash register sound. <laughs> Please welcome from Zion, Illinois, a local agent here. Do, 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 do. And we walk out. So they're playing and he's waiting. They're playing the intro and he's waiting to hear the, the cash register sounds. And he's like, ah, fuck it. They, they're not going to play it. So he goes, ladies and gentlemen, and they had put on time instead of money. So just <laughs> uh, as he's about to introduce us, the bells go off. And you know, ladies and, and ladies and gentlemen, bong, bong, bong. Yeah, <laughs> that's good. Put that off too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You should you should try that for the next tour. Like, you know, accost the band. <laughs> I think enough people know know what's going on by now. But back in back then I, I was a little nervous, you know, going out to some new cities or new shows but uh those those are the times that i i never forget you know playing in front of all those people and and you know just having fun with the guys you know when, when we had west kid on on the tour with us we used to have this routine where i'd throw the tambourine backwards up in the air and he'd catch it after a solo it, it was just this is fun i gotta totally off the topic um do you ever get on jags of listening to a band and just for some reason, like this week, you're listening to this band and you don't know why. And, you know, cause you're flipping around yeah. YouTube and, you know, you pull up something and then suddenly that week you're only listening to that band. And then two weeks later, and you're just like, Oh, I love this band. I, I can't see listening to anything else. And two right. weeks later, you're listening to something completely different. So what are you right. listening to this? What are you listening to this week? Oh, me? Uh, yeah. Uh, I'm not having one of those weeks, but, but I have had it before. It was like with uh, John Cale. I had like a summer where all I was listening to was John Cale for the entire okay. summer. That's all I listened to. And then after that, you know, every year or two years, I would listen to one song, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For uh, why, I, who you listen to? Um, nothing very esoteric. Um, I, I, for, two weeks now every night i'm listening to uh, the who live at leeds um oh i mean you know that's an essential it is an essential i know it's it's nothing that's really too far out of field but i'm i'm listening to it every night um which and, version are you listening to oh the full one you know the the the, the full the remaster the you know when did when did that one come out? Um, the one with Tommy on it. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, they do they do you know at the end, um, uh, and yeah. I, and and I mean I, yeah, I mean it's it's so good it's so forceful it's so visceral and and just in in exuberant, 
and and Townsend's guitar playing is is so good. But what I really Incredible. loving about it is 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 the little jokes that that Keith Moon is doing from the drum kit. Um, mm-hmm. he he just you know he's he's kind of like goading Townsend from behind the kit. But Townsend right. will will play right. along with them, and and they got this little back and forth thing. Um, it's uh, they're a pretty good band, the Who. Um, they're not bad. I mean that that's possibly it's possibly the best live record ever recorded. I don't need possibly. I I think it I think it is. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What's yeah. what's your favorite album opener song? I vote for "Rocks Off" by the Stones. Oh, really? Rocks up at the Stones. I mean, if you want to go with Stones. How could they open uh, that album with a different song? Well, Give Me Shelter is a pretty great opening. It's not bad. And yes. so is so so is Brown Sugar. Brown Sugar just gets it done. Yeah, yeah. I don't I wonder, and I've interviewed, you know, I interviewed Keith and I didn't ask him this, but who got to pick the opening song? Yeah, that's something that someone should ask him. I don't think it was. Bill Wyman. No, it wasn't Bill Wyman. Side two <laughs> of uh, Tattoo You. Side two, Side of, two tattoo. of Tattoo You is um, brilliant. Yeah. What, what's on it? I forgot. Um, he- Heaven is on. on yeah. Yeah, it's like, it's, it's sort of like sort of, side one is the party side and side two has all the sort of laid back songs. And Heaven is on side two. And that song is just great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, that's, that's a... Completely solid record. Absolutely. Oh, did you ever listening to Love Beach? What is that? <laughs> Love Beach is the much maligned Emerson, Lake and Palmer. Uh, well, album. Oh, right. Um, <laughs> no. Okay. No, See, I, is, I did not. This is the beauty of YouTube. Like, you know, you'll, you'll go on to what something that you want to watch, you know, and then you'll be, you know, on for an hour and you're watching something and you're like, how the fuck did I land here? So a few months right. ago, somehow I landed on Love Beach by Emerson Lincoln Palmer. And I admit, I love a lot of their stuff. I do. I think they were punks before punks because they were like, fuck you. We're doing what we want. Yes, we're going to play these really long songs with lots of shit in them. And no one's going to tell us otherwise. And, right. <laughs> and, and we're going to in the keyboard in the air and we're gonna throw knives at it and we're gonna have fucking gongs and shit i mean that's none of this stuff sounds punk by the way that's uh, punk all the way um <laughs> and we're gonna have 40 trucks you right. know yeah, yeah. So, uh what was the point oh so i'm <laughs> so everyone hates love beach you know because the band looks stupid on the the album jacket they look like they're you know out of friggin you know, some sort of ABC comedy at the time. Uh, it is a solid song, a completely solid pop song, not overblown. It's like three minutes, great riff, great hook. And I was like, Scott should play this song because it would blow people's minds. Love Beach. Oh, when I was doing the, uh, the, uh, the COVID covers, you mean? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah, I did not. <laughs> I didn't. You missed. Uh, you missed one. Yeah, I did. I'm gonna have to listen to that. Uh, all right, here's a story. Speaking of covers, 
We yes. did that uh, Guided by Voices cover of Smothered yes. in Hugs. Beautiful job. Beautiful. Thank you. And you used that on the Sling Blade soundtrack that yes. you were that you were in charge of. Mm -hmm. um, and that did not end well. That no. No, it, it didn't. Um, uh, yeah. Because uh, I remember so you gave me a cut of that movie and you're like, uh, you know, I need some music for this. So I wrote a couple of songs. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and a, you know, one of them was a version of sort of uh, Fine and Good and another was sort of a version of, uh, of Lucky Time, you know, both of yeah. which ended up on Pack Up the Cats. So that's fine. But they weren't interested or you weren't interested or whatever, it didn't work out. And you're like, you know what? I'm just gonna put this guy to my voices cover on. And then the next thing I know, they're on, no, there's a picture of us on E! Entertainment and uh, Daniel Lanois and Billy Bob Thornton are talking about how we destroyed their record. Yeah, they were not pleased. What? Um, they, were, they were not pleased. Um, you know, uh, I was a and the soundtrack album and th there wasn't enough music um, to really fit on the CD. And so it was decided, you know, and, and working with Chris Blackwell on this, that, you know, uh, some other stuff could go on the soundtrack album. Because a lot of times on soundtrack albums, on soundtrack albums, you have songs that are not in the movie, but they fit. Yeah. They fit the vibe of the movie, you Inspired know. Inspired by. It, yes, you know. And a lot of times, you know, a lot of times, yeah, record companies would completely put on artists of, that they were trying to break or whatever. It's just like, here, let's put it on, on this soundtrack. Um, we weren't trying to do anything that craven, you know. We were just like, no, let's just put a couple things on that really work well. And, and your cover, Smothered in Hugs, really beautiful really evocative gorgeous um totally fit um i i i didn't hear anything about it until i think it was the night of the academy awards and and yeah uh danny and billy bob kind of voiced their displeasure with with it um which took me by surprise, really. Um, you know, they didn't confront you at all, like when it was happening. No, no. Uh, to my to my knowledge, I don't recall any hearing anything about it. Um, I was taken aback to know that they were not pleased. Um, you know, um, sorry. You know. Yeah, I remember talking to uh, Bob Pollard about that and he's like yeah i took my son to see the movie we're really excited and we're they were waiting, waiting for the song, the song to come on and, and you know and it never came on and i was just like oh okay well movie's over well that and that would happen a lot you know i mean that, right that, that happens all the time you know um what did bob pollard think of your cover uh you know he probably thought it wasn't as good as his version um and and, and you know he'd be right hmm. i don't know about that that's debatable <laughs> you know well so as good as dead comes out and and i remember you you saying okay you went through all that work to make this record happen We're, we we did it again with steve hagler we brought in tom lord algae to mix it you know we were in 
Florida working on this fucking thing in the same studio as Aerosmith. And um, you're like, all right, you've got to sell at least 100,000 copies. And if you do that, you can get a third record. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that was the only time in my life that I ever kept track of how much we were selling. And, and once, we, <laughs> once we got to the 100,000 point, I was like, all right, fuck it. Let's go back to having fun. Yeah, yeah. Well, then, you know, as well you should. Um, yeah. Um, God, it, those were the days of big studios and big budgets and flying around and making records. Uh, th- those days are gone, man. You know? Yeah. For the most yeah, part. They sure are. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, it's, it, I mean, what do we, we sell 10 records of the first 10 copies of the first record and, and we're in Miami mixing the second record. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. That was, that was a gamble. Yeah. Yeah. That was, uh, yeah, that's right. I remember being down there. Those were good times. Yeah. Right. And you also, uh, you were in the video for High Five and Motherfucker, which I think Gabe wants to talk about. How did you, how did oh. you know that was on my mind? I was about to bring it up. <laughs> Joe, Joe, were you ever like wanting to be in movies or anything? Because you, you fit the part, you fit that part of the, the sleazy A&R pretty well in the, in the video for High Five. I don't, I don't know if people see it, but look at, the, look at the sleazy guy talking on the cell phone while Scott's taking a leak and he's right behind them. I mean, that must have been fun. <laughs> um, you know, doing what came naturally. Um, <laughs> Um, I, I think I, I think I, I think I overdid it a bit, uh, in, in, in that, uh, cameo appearance. So how much time did you spend outside in Lake Havasu? Not a lot, not a lot of time. Yeah. Uh, I was inside most all the time from the minute I wake up, we would drive there and, uh, Roy Thomas Baker had that studio that was like in the side of a mountain. So it was like going yeah. to work at the bat cave every day. And so yeah. by the time I got out, um, it was, it was dark and we'd stop for a couple of drinks and that was it, you know? Cause it might've been one of the hottest places I've ever been to on earth. Right. And uh, I remember I was staying cause I was there for like three or four days and I was staying at like this sort of like corporate apartment complex that they had. Yes really like one of the most bland buildings I've ever seen in my whole life. Um, anything that had any kind of character, they were like, Nope, we're taking that off. Right. And I remember there was a golf course uh, right outside the, 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 the apartment complex. And it was, it was a nine hole because nobody could get through 18 holes in, in Lake Havasu. You, you <laughs> Right. You would you would absolutely friggin' die of heat stroke. Um, I, I I I just always kept wondering, like, what attracted to this this guy, this legendary British producer of you know Queen and you know then the Cars and all that you know all the all the stuff. What attracted him to to live out there, you know, in, in a place that was absolutely, you know could give anybody some sort of heart condition i don't know i mean it was oh right i mean there was something a very retirement community about that but but i mean his i mean that that place that he had was crazy i've never seen anything like it i mean i walked in and the first thing i remember about roy's studio was i thought it would have like really tall ceilings and things like that but it was just it, it 
like the the shallowest ceilings I've ever been in in a studio. It was like going to like a video store. Right. It was just really yeah. long. And I was kind of like, how is he going to get a fucking drum sound out of this room? And he yeah. did. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he had Freddie Mercury's piano, I remember. Right. It was like a plexiglass piano and it had a wine stain in it. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, that's where Freddie spilled his wine. Did you play it? Yeah, but, you know, I probably played the piano part for Lucky Time that we were working on. You know, it's like, yeah, this piano has had Bohemian Rhapsody played on it. And here I am with my three fingers, like going, dee, dee, dee. It's not that piano's finest moment. I, I sat down at it and I tried to play a couple of the opening lines to Bohemian Rhapsody and I bonked it. And I remember Roy you know chuckling and he was just like you're not the first guy who's tried it <laughs> yeah roy was uh he was he was a he was a character yeah like i remember you listening to that record and you were kind of like you told me something to the effect of all right get ready here comes the ride you guys are you know gonna go to the next level with this one like you were very confident in that and and uh and then that's when Island got swallowed up yeah. by Universal. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, it, it's 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 a sad circumstance when something that is so ready to be massive, you know, just doesn't for all the wrong reasons. And I mean, you're you're not the only band to have been caught in the gears of corporate changeover, corporate shit, you know, buyouts. But it it certainly doesn't make it any, you know, any easier. Um, yeah, you know, it was it was a difficult time, you know, for a whole, I remember for a whole year, uh, just no one knew what was happening at the company you know, because the rumors were that we were going to, Polygram was going to be sold to Seagram. And so what happens is nobody does anything. Nobody spends money. Nobody agrees to pull the trigger on this, you know, whatever, because no one knows if they're going to be around in six months. Um, and it was, that was really, you know, it was, it was hard to be brave during, you know, that whole time because, you know, I just sort of saw you guys should you should have ascended to the next level, and you know, so you went from get really getting your shot to really not, you know, right? That was that was difficult. Well, it was weird because when when the label was Polydor and then it became Island, and I remember yeah. you telling me this. No, this is good for you. And, you know, and it was, and I think it was the last, it was the last time that something like that ended up the first and last time that something like that ended up being good for us. Like anytime we've, there's been a merger and people have said, no, this is good. It never fucking is. No, very rarely. No. Yeah. No, for a time it was good. You know, I mean, cause it was Island and prestige, obviously more, you know, more money to play with more 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 everything more everything good 
you know, if if that whole uh, Seagram sale never had happened, well, now we're going down the what if, right. you know, right. you know, who knows, you know, who knows? I mean, you know, you know, mook rock and rap rock was supposed was about to become the thing of the day. So mm-hmm. a pop record about cats might not have gone over no matter who was behind the wheel. <laughs> so what did what did you do after that? Well, that was weird because that was right when um, that was right when, uh, you know, another door started opening for me, you know, doing television, you know, that was because I had written this script and, you know, gotten with David Chase and the Sopranos and all that. And, and that was happening concurrently while I was still at Ireland um and you know talking to various agents and stuff like that so uh i remember i remember so okay so for a year we knew the sale was going to go down it was just a matter of when yeah. and that was really difficult because you every day you're coming to work and you're just like today's the day we're going to find out what's happening and you know, will I have a job? Will my bands get dropped? What have you? And it went on for a year. So after a year, you're just completely beat with it. So I, it got to the point where I just put it out of my head. I'm just like, I can't think about it. I'm just going to try to proceed. And I, I remember going out to lunch and uh, on my way back, my cell phone rings and my assistant was like, you know, you got to get back to the office right now. And I was like, oh, okay. And I remember walking onto the floor and people were crying. Oh. And I was like, uh, it's happening. That's it. Um, so, yeah. So I was, you know, like 90% of the floor, I was called in and, you know, there's an HR person there and they give you this folder and they're like, you know, we're being sold and your position is redundant. Uh, um the first time i've been redundant yeah um and uh you know so you know see you and here's your package and and all that what was funny was at that point i was already kind of thinking about possibly doing something else uh, tv writing that kind of thing and so i kind of went home that day and i was like well that's that and i remember the next week I got a call from ICM and they were like, can you come out to LA and we want to represent you? And it kind of went uh, pretty seamlessly. Landed on your feet. Landed on my feet for a while. Yes. Yeah. 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 That was... well, that's good. And, and you're, and you're still doing it. I'm still doing it. Yep. I know I should stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, why don't I you wise up? Why don't up you stop it? Why don't I stop? Um, because you know, there's that there's a line in Ford versus Ferrari, you know, and uh, because if I if I did, I would go crazy. Actually, Ted Knight had the best line in the Mary Tyler Moore uh, show. Yeah, um, you can't stop a man who won't be stopped. <laughs> 
that's you know is there is there any better uh, explanation than that um probably when ted knight says danny do you want a fresca i mean i, I think that <laughs> kind of that kind of lays it out doesn't it it kind of lays it out oh uh, yeah uh well, I mean, Joe, it, 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 it's great to talk to you. And, and for real, I mean, it, it's, uh, I mean, I owe you a lot. And oh. uh, it, uh, who knows where I'd be if uh, you hadn't uh, picked that sh- shitty tape out of that sack, you know? Because um, there weren't a lot of people that, that were willing to take a chance on us or give us the time of day. I mean, it might have happened eventually, but it might not have, you know? I, you know, thank you. I mean, from the bottom of my heart, thank you. And, and, but someone would have, you know, you guys were just too good. I mean, you you know, you you too, you were too good. Someone would have, someone, I wasn't the only one that saw it. I mean, someone would have eventually saw it. I just, I just got lucky. You know, it's like, that was meant to be that day, sticking my hand in because there, there were probably like 50 tapes in that bag, you know? And so I listened to four or five stopped with you guys. Like that's kind of like going into a bar and you meet the girl of your dreams. Like it was just going to happen that <laughs> night, you know, and it was going to happen to you. Yeah. You meet the girl of your dreams and then you get syphilis. <laughs> Exactly. It was gonna happen to you. <laughs> no one else. <laughs> Why did it have to happen to me? Stars above Down on love 
Gabe, I'm curious. Um, have you been bowling since uh, COVID? I've been bowling since I was four years old, and I have not bowled since March of 2020. So that's what I miss. I haven't. I, I used to go wow. to the, the bowling tournament every year in Vegas or Reno, you know, where they filmed Kingpin, you know, at the big stadium. And uh, this year I'm not going. It's for the first time. They didn't have the tragedy. Didn't have it last year. The full tragedy of the full tragedy of COVID has yeah, been revealed. So I, I hope to bowl again, maybe in the fall, but I, I'm not going to do it just yet. How are they? How are they? How are they handling bowling? You know, uh, with you know people putting their fingers in, in everyone else's balls. Well, I know that sounds you, terrible. <laughs> I, that's awful. There was no other right. way for me to say. Most that, people though. that could have said fingers in yeah. holes that would have been worse. Yes. Most people that bowl <laughs> competitively or at least in a league environment have their own equipment. They have their own balls. Yeah, they got their own balls, and yeah. they actually they actually. Uh, now everybody has to bring their own balls. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to put yeah. my hand in anybody's balls at the bowling alley anyway. But, uh, but they have they have these plexiglass shields they put between the lanes. They do that now for people that yeah. They if do? you ever go to bowling now, you'll see there's there's shields between the lanes, and you're supposed to stay with your group on your lanes, and you you should wear a mask. But um, you know they they're trying. But this the sport has been. But you. It's been on the decline for years, but it's even worse right now because of, of the pandemic. But you you've been bowling with the with the the dividers, no, but I haven't myself. You no, have, I haven't. You so haven't I, I moved and I, I didn't you know many people to bowl with yet. But maybe by the fall I'll, I'll I'll get back into it. So which bowler are you most influenced by? You're familiar with pro bowlers from you know. I grew up watching the ABC. Uh, the the bowling show every Saturday, uh, and yeah. and I re, I I don't know why, but I would watch every week, and I would I was fascinated by Earl Anthony. Earl Anthony grew up in my hometown area, in like near Gurney, Waukegan, Illinois, and that's that's where he passed. Yeah, but, uh, and he's one of my favorite, but he's left-handed, so that's that, that's not my guy. My guy was Wayne Webb. I don't know if you remember, uh, he's like a one-handed bowler that used to. I mean, he didn't have another no, no. hand. He, he bowled with with one hand. Uh, he didn't really touch it with two hands. But anyway, oh. the, you know, Norm Duke, Pete Weber, those those are guys that I kind of looked up. Pete Weber, yeah, he just, yeah. He just retired from the tour, the regular tour. He's now they're bowling the PBA fifty tour, the fifty and over. Didn't Earl Anthony have like a very, um, uh, not so you know unceremonious death? Didn't he like fall down a flight of stairs he, or something? I think he did. Uh, kind of like Gary Coleman. <laughs> That's Gary Coleman did not. Yeah, fall he down got the pushed stairs. by his wife. That's the rumor. But he fell down the stairs and and. Well, pushed is different well, than fell. They both <laughs> had a spill on the stairs. Wow! So That's she rough. fell down and knocked him down. No, is Gary Coleman. Or the, she said, the "I've had enough of your shit." He was pushed by his wife because they were whatever. But Earl Anthony did fall down the stairs. I think I'm pretty sure. Now I think you're getting confused that confused with Phil Hartman. No, no, no. <laughs> he was shot. <laughs> that was the word. He was he was shot by somebody, right? He was shot at yeah, his wife after she, and she pushed didn't him even down get the convicted because she killed herself too. We, we've been right, but she didn't right. push him downstairs. Apparently, you can't convict dead people. <laughs> um, yeah, but, well, poor Earl Anthony. I remember he had the he was rocking the crew cut uh, in the seventies. 
And, you know, that's when, like, the dudes all had the sideburns and mustaches and shit. And there's Earl Anthony just looking like he came out of the military, <laughs> you know. Back uh, in the back in the but, 80s, that you know, when I was like five or maybe seven years old, they had a professional tour in Waukegan where I, where I grew up. And back then, you can just you go and pay a couple of dollars and sit in the bleachers and watch. But uh, my dad forced me to go up to Earl Anthony and get an autograph. And a day later, there was a picture of my dad, myself and Earl Anthony in the newspaper from the tournament. And I have that article that shows, you know, us in, in, the, in the paper. It's pretty cool. Do you remember uh, where, you, where you were when you heard they died? Uh, I don't know where I was, but, you know, it was pretty big news because he was from our area. So it was kind of like JFK. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I used to be able to go to the local bowling alley and see him bowling there, and he'd, he'd be just hanging out, talking to people. So he was he was approachable. Yeah, he was approachable. He didn't he didn't let the fame you know really affect him too no. much. Wow! Until he got pushed down the stairs. Well, he fell. See, that's oh, right. yeah, that's true. Right. That's true. I, that's that's I actually track. heard that he tripped over Gary Coleman's body. Is what happened. There um, was there was there was some alcohol involved, right? With Gary <laughs> Coleman or Larry Anthony? I, I don't know. Maybe both. <laughs> I can ask my buddies. Gabe, I well, need that picture. I'll, I need that I'll get picture. You that That's got to be the image for but this this some, week's podcast. Some friends of mine knew Earl Anthony, and I I can ask him tomorrow and say, how did he die? And they'll, they'll tell me, like, the firsthand. So so you you knew that that game that that dude threw the worst game in Pro Bowl or history. was Tom Doherty, and he's bowled a 99. No, he, he got to over 100. On TV, and the guy who bowled against Barely. shot two ninety nine. He lost by over one hundred and ninety pins, I think. What's your high game? Uh, three hundred. You did a three hundred. Uh, hold on, a few times. times. And here, here's the best one. I'm not trying to brag. I did three hundred, three hundred. I did it oh, twice God. in one day, back to back. And it's wow. documented. So you've done fourteen three hundreds. Yes. Wow. I haven't even watched the movie 314 <laughs> times. That's yeah. Wow, it's, that's pretty great. What do you I mean, have you do you ever do you ever suck anymore? <laughs> I remember I I used to we used to be on the road and we get to bowling alleys and Scott say, let's go bowl, you know, because there's a bowling alley right there. And I'm like, well, I don't have my equipment, you know. Ah, oh, you don't need your equipment. Just go out there and bowl. I, well, it's it's not the same thing. So yes, I I can suck, but uh, it's it's uh, you know, me sucking is not the same as some other people. Yeah. Me sucking. No, Gabe would refuse to show his ass. <laughs> I'd be like, you know, it doesn't matter. You know, you're gonna you're gonna wipe the floor with me. So just let's 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 be evenly matched here. <laughs> and he's like, nah, can't do it. Would never fucking do We've it. We've gone bowling before, but not on the road like that. Yeah, but not with you, sans equipment. Correct. That's my those are my tools. Sans equipment. <laughs> wow. And like Okay, like I'm I'm fascinated by <laughs> clearly you're fascinated <laughs> by this. No, no, no. I, I'm fascinated by off nights. Like <laughs> like like that I, I love watching that bowler just completely fucking suck. You know, because <laughs> you you know he's good, but for some reason he's just gonna fucking really suck. And every fucking ball he throws is a split. And you just know he's just like shit, like Scott, like like me. Well, I was gonna say no. Um, 
I, I ask artists I interview all the time, like, you know, what do you do when you go out and for whatever reason, you just suck that night. Like nothing you do is right. It just you write a song about it, and you it's write a, a song hit. about it. Thank you, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, but isn't it? But how isn't it infuriating? You're on stage and you're just like, "Fucking last night we were amazing. What's what happened tonight?" Well, what I do, and I don't think Gabe does this. Uh, I just get fucking drunk. Hmm. So I don't, yes. I don't think Gabe does that. I right. like, I decide, all right, I suck. Tonight's gonna, tonight's, if you're going to suck, I'm going to really suck. And then, <laughs> and so you go down the drain and then sometimes you like spill back up. And it I was going to say, yeah, show. do you ever, do, do you, have you ever, cause I've only, I've actually, okay. In all the times I've seen you, you've been remarkably consistent. Uh. Okay. I've, I've never seen a bad gig. Okay. I've never seen you bad. Do you ever have a band a, a night where you're just like, fuck, tonight is not good. And you pull it out of the hat and suddenly you're good again. Oh, well, those are the best shows. Like when yeah. you're like, this is not going to be good. And then the audience isn't giving you what you want. And then you make them give you what you want. Those are that that is way more rewarding to me than. You know, when it's too easy, I honestly get kind of bored. I know that sounds like an asshole thing to say, but but if there's no friction, you know, if there's no tension, it's just so not like, that interesting. You're like Paul Newman in The Hustler. <laughs> I'm exactly like Paul Newman in The Hustler. You ever have those nights where you just know you can't miss? That's me tonight, fat man. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. See, he's great. And then he's got to go, he's got to fucking hit the skids and then get great again. Exactly. Or sometimes I'm like Tom Cruise in The Color of Money. You know, we gotta, I just can't lay down. I can't, I can't lay down. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is, but I just, I can't lay down. Yeah, yeah. Which, which film do you like better? Um, I really like Color of Money. Uh, and I know it's the lesser film, but I, I think it's pretty great. And Paul Newman is is better in that movie than he is in The Hustler. Wow, no you doubt. think so? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Paul Newman in that movie, when he's a uh, what is he a, a student of human moves? Mm -hmm. uh, that, that's just fucking great. Him in that movie and Nobody's Fool. There is no better no better example of uh, film acting in in history, I think, than the, those two movies. From him, not not Tom Cruise. What's wrong, with the, what's wrong with the verdict? There's nothing wrong with the verdict, but um, but it, you know, even you know, like even still, or Slapshot, he, not as good. Oh, Slapshot, he's he's fucking great in Slapshot. He is, I think, the best film actor of all time. I'm not gonna say Slapshot isn't great. It is great, and I'm not gonna say he's not great in the verdict, but you know. The older he got, the better he got. It's pretty, pretty crazy. I want to say that Gabe is the Forrest Whitaker and color of money of bowling. Oh, right. Yeah. Nice. Forrest Whitaker and color of money. Let me ask you something. You think I need to lose some weight? <laughs>
originally Richard Gere. Oh. Yes. And they were like a couple days into shooting. And I think Richard Gere was eating a hot dog. Uh, no, Stallone was eating a hot dog too ne ne near Richard Gere. And they had a, it came to blows or something. Um, and uh, so he said, fuck you. I'm going to go do looking for Mr. Goodbar. Well, one, one of them had to go and it, it wasn't Stallone. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Poor Richard Gere. And his career never recovered. <laughs> yeah. So there you go. There you go. Oh, my God. It's almost 1130. Yeah. <laughs> wow. This show is called The Long Goodbye. We, 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 we said goodnight about an hour ago. <laughs> Actually, I'm I'm just kind of feeling like we're just about to get just getting warmed up. Yeah. Yeah. So what do you guys want to talk about? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a great closing line for this. Show. When do we start? <laughs> oh, <laughs> am I supposed to be recording? <laughs> oh, this was fun. <clears throat> This is the most you got out of me in this podcast. Out of all the podcasts, this is the most I've talked, so it's good. Oh, it's going to be gold. I know exactly. I know exactly. <laughs> this last hour, this last hour is going to just going to be a spin-off podcast. The game. Yeah. You should just exactly. actually. You should just. You should just use <laughs> the last hour. <laughs> what would that be like? Oh my god. <laughs> that would actually you know what we should we should release the last hour on friday and then spring the first hour and a half on like saturday or sunday without telling anybody that there's it would be like it would be like you ever listen to andrew dice clay's the day the laughter died mm -hmm. one yeah. of the most painful comedy records ever made <laughs> yeah you know well they're there you go. There's your marker. There's your benchmark. <laughs> That's right. All right. <clears throat> All right. What? <laughs> that, keep going. That's it. We got it. We got it. It's in the bag. It's a wrap. We're done when I say we're done. <laughs> Son, remember that mentor thing? Well, this is this is how it goes. <laughs> that was in the nineties. <laughs> that was then. That was then. I don't need to listen to you anymore. <laughs> remember what? Remember that thing I said uh, three hours ago about uh, uh, 
post show thing. We're not doing. Yeah, that. no, no, I, I got you. <laughs> I, I totally got you. All right, you guys. All right, it's been a wonderful right. time. All right, I do have to go. Peace out. <laughs> okay, no, seriously, for being a great guest, Joe. <laughs> Thank you for saying that. Um, seriously, this was a lot of fun. This was great. It, you know. Thank you for asking me. I'm 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 truly honored, and I love you, Scott. And this is a lot of fun. I love you, Joe. Thank you so much. All right, you guys. All right, thank you, Joe. Take care, you guys. All right. Okay. Bye. Bye. Bye.